so it's kind of interesting that we suddenly had had this big earthquake there the magnitude 6.5 earthquake there and that's why it drew a lot of attention this is parsing science the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves i'm doug lay and i'm ryan wakian ralph waldo emerson said we learn geology the morning after the earthquake in this episode, we talk with Falaran Kalawale from Oklahoma State University about his research into the causes of a 6.5 magnitude earthquake that rocked Moyabana, Botswana in April of 2017, even though it lies about 200 miles from where earthquakes have typically happened. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to parsing science. Here's Fullerin Kowawali. My name is Folarin Kolawale, but you can call me Fola. Um, that's the short form of my name. I grew up in a um, in a small city in southwest Nigeria called Akure. Um, so this small city is surrounded by beautiful um, granite hills. And um, at the beginning of my college days, I started going out outdoor hiking, hiking those hills. Um, surrounding the small town of Akure where I grew up um, all by myself that drew me close closer to geology so while I was even studying geology in college I was getting to see it myself in the outdoors when I travel with my friends and um, while I was in college I was always looking out for um, opportunities to do research with professors and try to you know bring ideas into my research and then I worked in Nigeria for um, in the industry, in the oil industry, um, Niger Delta Basin. I worked as a seismologist for three and a half years, but I wanted to do more of interpretation. I wanted to go outdoors, um, study rocks, then if possible, relate, um, um, if possible, acquire geophysical data and integrate my geological and geophysical data, you know, to um, see what, what more we can learn about processes and, um, that was why I decided to come to United States. I did my master's at Oklahoma State University, which was very productive because that passion was there for the science and for the outdoors. Moyabana is a village of about 3,000 people in the central district of the landlocked nation of Botswana. But the earthquake was felt as far away as South Africa, Swaziland, and Zimbabwe. Fullerin began our conversation by discussing how the geography of the region made this possible. Moyabana area is in eastern Botswana, and it's an area that you typically don't see earthquakes. Now, in the east, in East Africa, we have this huge plate boundary that is that has been developing for millions of years now, which we call the East African Rift System. And if you go to the map of East Africa, you can see it even on Google Earth. You can see the um, the Rift Valley clearly. You can see it extending from the Red Sea in the north through Ethiopia, through Kenya, Tanzania. One of the things you notice is that as you go from north to south along this rift valley, you will see a lot of lakes within the rift valley. It's basically because you have fault movements in which the, 
middle area between the two no, faults is dropping respect to the two bounding faults so as the middle part drops it forms a valley right and it's dropping because you have fault movement on both sides of the valley and because you have that those bounding faults are ponding water right so you, you have all these lakes so if you if you just look at the lakes in east africa from the red sea through ethiopia down to um, mozambique and then to the west towards Botswana, you can see how those lakes kind of line up and you can use that for the layman you can easily use that to trace the the geometry of the east african reef system so i mentioned now that when two plates come together they collide they form a mountain belt or you have subduction like one one slide under the other and then when they start to pull apart again they will localize the rifting which is the breaking apart where along the boundary where they collided so those parts that did not undergo splitting basically that have been stable they've not undergone any kind of tectonic um, deformation for up to two billion years are what we call cratons so now in the east african reef system you will realize uh, uh, from studies from a lot of research we've come to understand that the present east african reef system is actually following um previous zones of convergence of small plates Cratons are old and stable features of the Earth's surface that are generally found in the interiors of continental plates. We were curious about how the cratons in this region developed. So if you, if you look at that area, we have more than one craton. We have two cratons talked to one another. To the northeast, we have the Zimbabwe craton. And to the southwest, we have the Kavao craton. And between them is the zone of convergence which we call the Limpopo Shashi Belt. It's typically called the Limpopo Belt. It's named after the Limpopo River uh, flowing in that area. So uh, you can think of the Limpopo Shashi Belt as a mountain belt, right? Long, okay, think of it as the Appalachian Mountains in Eastern United States. So Appalachian Mountains basically formed because you have two plates colliding with one another right or we can see two or more plates but in the simplest form two plates colliding with one another and you will realize that the geometry the overall geometry of that mountain belt can tell you about the how the plates collided um, with one another like were they sliding while colliding with one another or what like were they sliding side by side or uh, was it just head-on collision boom you know um the geometry of structures within the uh, within the mountain belt can tell you a lot of things about how the two plates collided. However, the Zimbabwe craton and the Kabval craton has been they've been stable for a long time. So it's kind of interesting that we suddenly had had this big earthquake there, the magnitude six point five earthquake there, and that's why it drew a lot of attention. While no fatalities were reported, a stampede of people panicked by the quake injured at least 36 students on April 3, 2017. Prior to then, the nearest seismic activity had been in an area about 200 miles north of Moyabana. We wondered what the quake suggests about the evolution of the African tectonic plate. In northern Botswana, we have a new rift opening up, what we call, what we refer to as an incipient rift valley. And that is where we have the highest concentration of seismicity in Botswana. 
it's along the rift valley which we call the okavango rift valley if you go to google earth browse to Botswana, you can see the okavango delta it's like a swamp within you know within a continent it's not at the edge of of any ocean or lake or whatever but you can see that as the as the delta fans out it suddenly gets truncated it just suddenly gets cut off you can see that clearly on google earth that line that cuts off the delta is a fault line that is the fault that bounds the rift valley right and You've, we've been they've been having a lot of earthquakes there um over time a lot even till now and it's we typically think of um, um okavango rifts more like the youngest part of the east african rift system so if you want to study a rift that has been developing or that's more like in the late stage of rift development before an a new ocean is formed between two plates we go to um, the northern part of Ethiopia, so where the Red Sea um, kind of connects with Ethiopia. Uh, we call that area the Afar region. You can see it on Google Earth. You can see that the volcanoes there, the broad um, shape um, of the of the Rift Valley. So that's we think of that area as just at the late stage of rifting, and it's about to form a new a new ocean, basically. But as you come down south along the East African Rift System, you begin to see the younger segments of the rift system and Botswana is regarded as about the youngest um, segment of the East African rift system. So people or scientists that are interested in studying how rifts develop go to Botswana. Botswana is where they go to Dokavango Rift. Even though the process only gained scientific consensus about 60 years ago, most children today learn about plate tectonics in elementary school. We asked Valarin to remind us how tectonic plates interact with one another and what this might suggest about why earthquakes can occur far away from areas of continental collision. Geoscientists typically think of the Earth as evolving through a continuous and cyclic process of convergence and divergence. In the sense that you have plates coming together, smashing into one another, to create maybe mountain belts or one of the plates slides under another plate as we are having. So the, in the first case, mountain belt, an example is um, in the Himalaya mountains where the Indian plate is colliding with the Eurasian plate, right? So the plate boundary between them basically became a mountain belt and it's still collide, colliding till today. The example of where a plate slides underneath another one is basically the west coast of united states right and down to um mexico and the big the recent big earthquake in mexico is because of the sub what we call subduction because one plate is sliding down another plate right now we are beginning to understand that a lot of continental masses were formed by this convergence right and then after a long time of convergence and then you begin to have divergence again so the plate two plates that already collided to form a single plate now begins to split apart again but we we come to find out that where they start to f to split apart are basically those zones where they actually collided in the first place why because those zones represent zones of weaknesses right in the initial new plates that formed 
To varying degrees, many rocks contain naturally occurring magnetic materials. Since they result from the erosion of igneous and metamorphic rocks, sedimentary rocks can carry the magnetic signature of their source materials to lower-lying areas in which they settled. Fullerin explains how and why his team studied the magnetism of the Earth around Moyabana. So aeromagnetics simply means airborne magnetic data or magnetic technology. So basically, we know that sedimentary rocks generally have a lower concentration of magnetic minerals. So if you are flying a, a magnetic sensor, um, which we call magnetometer, the signals that you'll be getting typically will be coming from the basement that has been beneath the basin. Between these basement rocks, you have contact, you have boundaries, right? You have boundaries. And those boundaries show up really well in the magnetic data. Before they fly an aeromagnetic survey, they try to estimate how, how deep the basement is, like how thick the sedimentary cover is. The deeper the basement is, the shallower they're supposed to fly. So the, the thinner the sedimentary cover, the higher they can afford to go. So the aircraft basically flies like a grid, but think of the grid as one direction now. They are not actually collecting data in the other direction. They are typically collecting data specifically to tie the main lines together, just to ensure that they have consistency in the signals that they see at specific data points across the survey area. So they call it tie lines. Now, if you're flying a magnetometer over that area, maybe at a constant height of 80 meters, and deep in the subsurface, there's a fault, which you don't know about, but the fault is there. And then there's a sudden drop in the basement. You will see that sudden change also in your magnetic data. And also we can have precipitation of magnetic minerals or um, degradation in the concentration of magnetic minerals along a fault. So where you have, so if your fault is conducting fluids, you will have weathering along the fault and that can lead to reduction in the concentration of magnetic minerals along that fault in the basement. Or if you have mag uh, um, chemical reactions leading to precipitation of magnetic minerals or higher minerals along the fault, maybe due, due to um, hydrothermal fluids moving through the fault, that can also create a distinct increase in concentration of magnetic minerals along the fault, and you will see that spike in your magnetic data. That is why we use aeromagnetics to map faults. The study also mapped the terrain boundaries of the region using gravitational data and used satellite imagery to examine the deformation of the ground before and after the earthquake. We asked Fularen to explain how these methods work and what they suggested about the Moyabana quake. Gravity basically um, is a measurement of um, gravitational response or gravitational acceleration from one point to another on the Earth. Now, in sedimentary basins where you have thick sediments, you have lower gravitational acceleration. Where you have basements being shallower, that is thinner sedimentary cover, you will have higher gravitational response. So if you have a fault across which the basement has gone down, you will also have a change in the gravitational acceleration across that fault. Now, this differential interferometric synthetic aperture radar, which we um, abbreviate as DINSAR, some people call it INSAR, it basically means time-lapse um, measurement of surface elevation. So imagine you have this satellite flying around the Earth or orbiting the Earth and acquiring um, radar data, you know, 
every now and then. So let's pick a location, let's say Oklahoma. And then um, because the satellite keeps flying around the entire Earth, it acquired, it keeps acquiring data. So it it's been acquiring data over Oklahoma for a long time since the satellite has been in orbit. And then there's an earthquake tomorrow, suddenly, in Oklahoma. And that earthquake, because of the shaking and fault movement, there is displacement at the surface of the Earth, you know, in Oklahoma. It could be as low as five centimeters, you know, which to the human eye, you may not even be able to see it. But because you acquire another radar data after that earthquake occurred, you can subtract the pre-earthquake radar image from the post-earthquake radar image. And then you will see the change. You will see where the most um, change is within that area, the most change in elevation. And we've used this technique to map surface deformation for some time now, and they've been giving really good um, results. The most common location of earthquakes are the boundaries where tectonic plates meet. But other earthquakes, such as the 5.8 magnitude quake which struck northern Virginia in 2011, do happen from time to time. We wondered how Tholeran became interested in such rare seismological events. Part of our motivation for doing this study um, wasn't just because we're interested in the Mojabana Botswana earthquake, but because we wanted to understand some of the boundary conditions that facilitates this kind of magnitude of earthquakes within a craton. Plate boundaries are zones where we expect earthquakes, the biggest earthquakes to occur, or earthquake generally. Um, however, we have earthquakes also, we can have earthquakes in cratonic regions. So in, in the cratons, we can also have earthquakes. And those are the kind of earthquakes that we regard as intraplate earthquakes. They are very uncommon. They are, they, they are not frequent. And because of that, we ha we're still having a hard time understanding the processes and the um, major controlling factors that determine where or how they are they form, you know, how they occur, because they don't occur often. So we don't have a lot of data, you know, to study these kind of earthquakes. And another important thing about intraplate earthquakes is that they can be very large in magnitude. Like the one in Botswana is still can be regarded as an intermediate magnitude earthquake, but it's significant enough to cause huge damage if it occurs in an area of high population. It's, it, I mean, the Mineral Virginia earthquake in the United States is, is a big one. It's an intraplate earthquake and it's caused a lot of damage. And we've had um, significant intraplate earthquakes in other parts of the world too. And that's why scientists are very interested in how um, cratons also um, deform with respect to stresses in the earth you know these are areas that are stable or expected to be stable you know but they once in a while they just ha um, have these earthquakes occurring so we wanted to test a pre-existing planes of weakness within a cratonic region and that was and we saw this area as a very good area and the earthquake as a very good um, event that can help us test this hypothesis Folaren and his team used a mathematic model to determine the type of faulting that caused the Moyabana earthquake to shift the ground by three and a half inches. We were curious about how the approach works and what it says about the quake's origins. 
So we, we have something we, um, we call focal plane mechanism solutions. It is basically a mathematical solution for the source of an earthquake. The focal plane mechanism solutions is more like the first indicator, let me put it that way, of the style of faulting that created that earthquake. Scientists over time have developed very intelligent ways of estimating focal plane solutions for earthquakes by using earthquake data that has been recorded by seismometers. The seismometers could be could be far away. Um, they typically use more than one, even more than two. Basically, you need a lot, I think about 10, to have a good focal plane mechanism solution that is reliable. But basically, the focal plane mechanism solution um, can tell you how the different areas around the place where the earthquake occurred, it can tell you how the different areas moved relative to one another. And that can tell you where you have the hertz going down and where you have the hertz going up. The same seismologic data can tell you how deep the earthquake is based on the travel time. So the focal plane mechanism solution um, for, the Botswana, for the Botswana earthquake tells us that it is normal faulting. And that was one of the reasons why a lot of scientists were actually amazed. Like, oh, wow, the faults in this area are old, you know, over 2 billion years old. And they were trust faults. They were formed by compressional stresses because of the convergence of two plates. But this earthquake, the mathematical solution for this earthquake shows that the earthquake um, formed along a normal fault. And normal faults form by extension. Basically, you are pulling the crust apart. And that's what we have along divergent plate boundaries, right? So we're like, oh, wow, we're having extensional stresses here in an area where we had compressional stresses billions of years ago. The summary of our research is that um, those faults that were billion years old that were formed by compressional stresses are now being reactivated. And it's simply because... Um, those planes are pre-existing planes of weaknesses that can locally concentrate stresses within a craton. Because earthquakes in this area of Botswana are so rare, rumors soon spread that it was a result of hydraulic drilling in the central Kalahari Game Reserve. The day after the earthquake, the head of the Botswana Geoscience Institute announced that it was not induced by human activity. We asked Fullerin what he thought. So um, they, they, they started having some anthropogenic activities related I don't, I'm not sure there's this fracking it was more you know, I read about it recently and I just forgot what they're doing somewhere close to Moijabana um, but that activity is very shallow it's okay I, I think it's hydrothermal exploration if I'm correct but it's really shallow like within less than one kilometer you know into this into the ground that's where they are doing whatever they're doing but this earthquake is pretty deep you know, because everyone thought, oh, it's because they are doing this stuff here. That's why we're having these earthquakes um, in Moijabana, where we'd never had earthquakes. But no, this earthquake is really deep. The Moijabana earthquake is around 22 kilometers. That's, that's, that's really deep. And you, th there's no way, at least based on present thinking, science, we don't think such shallow activities, you know, can create earthquakes that deep. In 1980, University of Chicago statistics professor Steven Stigler published his Law of Eponymy, which offered that no scientific discovery is named after the original discoverer. We couldn't resist asking if Fularen was tempted to name the Moyabana earthquake after himself. No. 
you know I've, I've i have had that comment i have had that comment like several times where whenever i present present my papers on that earthquake <laughs> like hey why didn't you name it after yourself no <laughs> no that's i know back in the days you see explorers naming stuff after themselves or no <laughs> no <laughs> no we named it we named them after villages that um, sits right on the fault along the along the trend of the fault, just to have something for other scientists that will be working. No, I don't want to name any fault after myself. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that is scientifically responsible. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, we asked Fellerin what he's looking forward to regarding the future of geoscience and the study of earthquakes. Scientists at University of Oklahoma. Uh, trying to initiate a project that will involve drilling into the seismogenic zone of the Sunalik Fault, which is the fault that moved um, last September in Oklahoma to create the Pony Earthquake, which everyone had been talking about. So they want to drill into that zone that moved and retrieve core samples, so rock samples from that zone, uh, because that can tell us a lot about the reason why the fault is susceptible you know what kind of materials do they do you see along the fault itself are they weak materials you know are they pulverized materials or if they're pulverized what kind of minerals do you see in them you know what's the frictional properties of the fault rock um you know they can it can tell us a lot and they can install um actually sensors deep down that can tell us if that fault is moving, you know, slowly or when the fault is about to move. Things like that. We can we can we can better study that kind of fault more. Now they've recently they just completed that kind of drilling in India, where they drilled into the seismogenic zone of an induced earthquake, reservoir induced earthquake in India. And they even want to build a big institute, you know, research center to facilitate further studies of that particular um, um, area because it's been um, causing a lot of earthquakes um, over time. So this is one interesting area that has been gaining more attention. So I think that is something that scientists are beginning to look into because, you know, we can try to estimate from data that we collect at the surface, but there is nothing like actually touching the rock itself. You know, touching the part of the rock that moved, there is not. I think that is just the the peak. You know, it can tell us a lot. That was Fularen Kalawale discussing his article from the September 8, 2017 issue of Geophysical Research Letters, which he published with an international team of seven other researchers. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org along with other materials that he discussed during the show. Have you got a tip for parsing science? If so, we'd love to hear from you, like we did from this caller. Hi, parsing science. This is Zach Allen from Huntington Beach, California. Enjoying your podcast so far. I hope you guys keep up the good work. It's really exciting to hear new voices in the scientific community. Thanks a lot. Bye. You can call us toll-free at 1-844-EXPLORE-IT. That's 1-844-975-6748. Let us know what's on your mind, and we might feature your call in a future show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll feature clips from the best conversations with our guests from 2017. 
Some we've never aired, so be sure to tune in for even more unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science. We hope that you will join us again.